Podcast One. Welcome back. You are listening to episode 116 of the Howie Games, part B, featuring the Prince, Brian Charles Lara. On we go. When I say to you, Captaincy of the West Indies, what's the first thing that springs into your mind, Brian? Um, you lose friends. Um, you gain respect, you lose respect. Um, it's a job, it's a very tankless job, uh, being a captain of the West Indies. And uh, you got to understand that there is a lot of insularity where everyone comes from a different island. And cricket is the only thing that actually unifies us. Everything else is separate. Usain Bolt don't run for the West Indies. He runs for Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Um, for me to get to Barbados uh, tomorrow, I would need a passport. You know, whilst in Australia, you know, you just travel as freely as you can. So there is a lot of um, things that have kept us back over the years. When you're in a winning team, like the 70s and 80s, everything is great. Everybody's happy. There is nothing to worry about. But um, it is tough. But... Um, Again, a great privilege to have uh, captained the West Indies, um, not just once, but uh, three times. So which means that I, I was offered the opportunity to captain uh, a second and a third time. And um, each time it was not great success, but it was always a great learning experience. What did you learn about yourself and the keys to leading men in a team environment? Uh, my shortcomings, mainly. I, I felt that uh, tactically I was not bad, but man management um, was a bit poor, but I grew up in a period and I felt where that came from. I grew up in a period where uh, oh, you enter a great team and you were, you had to swim, you had to get out there, you had to paddle, you have to do things. And I felt that if you get into the West Indies team as well, you, ha- you, you know, you, you're of a certain quality, you know, and, and it took me a couple of years to play two or three games for the West Indies, even though I was the top batsman in the Caribbean, you had to work your way into the team. During my time, though, I was not looking at the fact that a guy just scored 100 and he's in the team. A guy just looked good and he's in the team. And obviously, when you try to bridge that gap between first-class cricket and international cricket, if you don't have what it takes mentally, you know, you're going to be found wanting. And um, that, was, that was something that uh, I think that I may have needed to have had a little bit more empathy with players that were thrown in at the deep end and expected great things of them. And... Um, it's, it's, that's the one thing I learned, that everybody is not uh, made up in the same way and you, you might be able to handle a situation better than another person. So um, for me, that is the lesson that I've take, uh, taken away from cricket captaincy and applied to my life. There's so much made in this part of the world about the baggy green. Um, I remember growing up, grainy pictures of the cricket from the West Indies and that amazing maroon cap with the with the badge on it, do you have the cap somewhere? Is it is it something you hold close to your heart or is it not as not as important as we see it in Australia with the baggy green cap? For me, it is very important. Um, I don't think there was, uh, there was a lot of caps shared around. And, and listening to what Shane Warne and uh, Steve Waugh um, had to say, you know, at some point in time, I think Steve stopped it, where you got a cap and then you'd have to, you know, work to get the next one or it's not going to come that easily. Um but for me, it's just uh, it's it's not the cap or the sweater. Um, it's the it's the smile that I brought on on people's face. I think that more than anything else, I'll give away my cap tomorrow. But you know, just to see the smile, the entertainment, um, the hope, and um, you know, I had some great battles with Australia. And you know, you can go back to that Barbados Test match, and seeing how uh, the emotions of people, 
that is something that is that I wish I can sort of bottle. That that is the intangible that you wish is you know is tangible, and you can actually hold on to it. So for me, it's that um, great um, emotions that that West Indians have when you do well for them. I want to ask you a further question about that. You mentioned Barbados, Kensington Oval. For those that aren't aware, uh, I wrote it down here. The Australians made 490. The West Indies made 329. Australia bowled out for 146. So you guys are chasing 308 to win a test match. Jason Gillespie to resume to Lara. Beautiful shot. No need to run for that. The placement was as usual perfect. So you were five for 105 and then nine for 302 when Courtney Walsh joined you. In the end, you won at nine for 311 with you making 153 not out, Brian. That's his 100. Brian Lara hits it over the top. And the West Indies captain, the prodigal son, Turn Messiah, gets his second 100 in successive tests. And if the 213... At Sabina Park, revived West Indies fortunes. This one here has transformed a match in which they seem to have absolutely no chance to get even where they are now. Gillespie. has won the match for the West Indies. The West Indies team run onto the oval. And one of the great results in Test match history has just been witnessed here at the Kensington Oval. I'm not big on numbers, but it was listed as the second best test innings ever played behind Sir Donald Bradman. In your eyes, is that your best test innings? You know, I, I've been battling with that. And uh, a lot of uh, people, um, you know, I, I would go into a sort of conversation with them and, and they are, uh, without doubt, is saying that that's my best innings. But um, it was a period in my career where I was at my lowest. And uh, end of uh, 1998, early 99, we were in South Africa and we lost every single test match, uh, six out of seven one-day internationals. And I was expecting to be sacked as captain. Um, You don't have the time for me to tell you why I think I wasn't sacked, but I was the first captain that was put on probation for the West Indies. I was put on probation for two test matches. And very quickly, the first one was in Trinidad and Tobago. And that's the reason why I was not sacked. It was in my country. Right. It would have been riots, Brian. They would have rioted in the streets. And why give him him one? Give him two. (laughs) If they gave me one, it would look pretty obvious. Yeah. Australian, so it's just going to be a matter of time. And we lost in Trinidad and Tobago very easily. Embarrassed, actually. We bowled out for 51. Not 36 like uh, like India, (laughs) but 51. And we got to Jamaica. And Jamaica, very, very strong and, and powerful people. They love their culture and they love the West Indies. I remember being um, booed and, and sort of jeered whenever I, you know, I walked out in the open or when we walked to Toss, myself and Steve Waugh, he was surprised to, to hear the crowd and their reaction. And Australia batted first. They scored maybe close to 260. And uh, we were 36 for four at the end of the first day. And just remember, we just scored 51 in Trinidad. So, I'm, <laughs> you know, this is crazy. And one of my Jamaican friends came and he said, Brian, he came to my room and he brought me some jerk chicken and, and stuff like that, fish. 
and he said, you guys going to win the test match. But Jamaican's very, known very well for, for good marijuana. So I think he must have been smoking something. <laughs> he had to be smoking something to say, like, I'm thinking, are we going to the runs? You know, are we going to be save the follow-on? And the next morning, um, we were on the field, and it, the, the practice nets were actually on the field itself. So Steve Waugh and the Australians went to practice about 15 minutes to go to the start. And I went across with my bat and pads. I was not out. And I asked, Steve for, I asked Steve for a net. And he said to me, I'll have it in five minutes. I said, Steve, but we are batting. He said, yeah, but we're going to be batting soon. So with that, I left, I, you know, I left him with a few choice words. And I went to the side and I knocked up. And at 36 for four, myself and Jimmy Adams took it, I think, to somewhere close to 350, 360 for four on that day. And for me, knowing that it was my last test match, if we lost, um, dealing with all the pressures of, of, of West Indies cricket, captaincy, and everything that was coming in my, all the negatives that was coming my direction, I personally felt that I've never actually batted better under any situation than that in my life. I don't think he'll take a short signal like he did 100 runs ago. Field the ball. So the umpire will give him four runs. And this is one of the problems because it's the safety of the players that you feel for. You've got idiots lying on the pitch. And this is a slur on the game of cricket. It's a slur on the supporters here, both Australian and local supporters. And we know that it's a great moment. But if the people of Fair Dinkum Cricket supporters, they would allow Brian Lara to enjoy the moment in peace and afford him the applause and the space that he so thoroughly deserves on the ground. Now, a week later was Barbados. So, you know, a lot of people don't even mention that 213 in Jamaica, but I think that that is maybe the most cherished innings that I've ever played. And how have you learned to deal in your career with negativity when people are saying, he can't do this, he can't do that, he's not like those guys, he can't lead like him? How do you deal with that? Um, I smile. I didn't for the first six uh, years of my career, but I think the watershed moment was definitely during that uh, series. And not at that time. It was actually before the series start when I felt that, you know, it's going to be all over. I felt that, you know, you need to be at peace with yourself. You need to enjoy this game that, um, you know, you were born to play. Captaincy or not, that does not affect your situation. I felt that I went into that series very clear in my thinking and um, another, another watershed moment. So for me, the negativity is beyond 1999 was just sort of water on my back. I mean, I just, just brushed it off and moved on. Sports psychology, mate, is such a big part of modern athlete's life. I was reading a little bit about visualisation and your name came up in the article. Did did you, have I got this right, did you use visualisation before you batted and how did you implement that side of, I'm fascinated by the mental side of the game as much as the physical? Yeah, I I did actually. And again, it came from a book, uh, a a Michael Jordan book, talking about visualisation and how he looked at things and, you know, sometimes it didn't work out. 
And in Barbados, uh, that last morning, I, I called a couple of school friends of mine who made the trip over, uh, one by the name of Nicholas Gomez, who was my school captain back in the day when I was 14 and he was 18, 19. And um, they came over to my, uh, my room, four o'clock in the morning, I promise you, drunk. <laughs> they were partying and they came to my room and we sat and we talked about how we're gonna approach each and every single ball from a McGraw, from Gillespie, what am I going to do against the spinners? And from there, I started to sort of visualize how this innings was going to be going to turn out. Be defensive against McGraw. Try to face as least ball as possible. Um, Gillespie was actually the better bowler um, in that test match and was giving me a lot of trouble. So I had to be very careful against him and sort of pounce on the spinners when they, when they came on because that's the time that you have to put the pressure back on the Australians. And even if they brought back McGrath, so what? And if you look at that day, McGrath bowled, I don't know, 30-something overs out of, out of 80, 90 overs. He bowled almost at one end all day. And um, visualization became a very big part of, of my game, my preparation, seeing how things are going to unfold, living it. And as I said, majority of the time, they may not come out, but when they do, you know, it's a very special feeling. You mentioned the West Indians crowds before, and I wanted to ask you about it. What does it mean for the various islands and for the Caribbean in general when the West Indies cricket team wins? It's an amazing feeling. Um, it's something the way, you know, if you understand the Caribbean, um, colonised by the English, um, you know, an opportunity to, to play cricket as, as, a, as, as a local, as a Caribbean person was tough. Independence in 1962 and for other islands even later um, meant that uh, we had to work really hard as a nation and as a people to, first of all, um, to be recognized. And a lot of cricket was used back in the day to make sure that people understand that we can actually run our own affairs. So in the back of the days of Sir Frank Warrell and Sir Garfrey Silvers, the, the Warrell um, Weeks and, and all these great players, Cricket was used as that sort of tool. And, you know, you'd go to a game in the Caribbean between Barbados and Jamaica back in those days, and there was 20,000, 30,000 people, a first-class game. Um, so it's ingrained in us. It's, uh, it's something that, um, you know, my dad would speak volumes about all those great players. And one of the nicest things, uh, and maybe just moving away a little bit, is that when I played at school, four or five of the kids had dads who were play, former West Indian players. Right. My dad would sit in that environment as, you know, a laborer, as I said, as a manager of an agricultural station in the latter part of his life. And it actually made me feel very proud as a young man, seeing him having conversations with Joey Carew, Brian Davis, all these great players. So it means a lot to West Indians, not just in the West Indies, um, the diaspora. When you're in England, it's unbelievable. The, the support that West Indies team have in England. And that came from all those halcyon days when those guys were doing well. And you look back at old videos and you're seeing they're jumping all over the place when Richards is striking the ball. Um, it's an um, amazing feeling. I think um, it speaks for itself. You know, people know uh, how suppressed we were back, uh, you know, 40, 50, uh, maybe not 40, 50 years. No, I'm talking maybe 70 years back in yeah. the 40s, 50s. So it's, um, it's a really special feeling when you perform well for them. One of the finest batsmen you'll ever want to see. 
arrives in the middle of the Kensington Oval. The England boys give him a guard of honour. They clap him through the middle and he deserves it. When you gave it away after one day in the World Cup, and I looked at this and it made me smile and you were being asked a question in the post-match and you addressed the interviewer and you addressed the crowd and to paraphrase you say, did I entertain you? And the crowd roared. And to me, Brian, not knowing you very well but watching you as a cricketer, you were the great entertainer. And the fact you asked that question obviously means it's an important part of your makeup that you didn't just want to be a cricketer, you wanted to be a cricketer that I call is a bums-on-seats man. People pay to see you play. All I want to ask is, did I entertain? I think uh, that's a resounding yes. Well, if I entertain you, I'm, I'm really happy and uh, I want to thank you all very much for all the support that you've given me over the years. I've got some special friends here today from school, right through my life, and um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for everybody for turning up. I've enjoyed every single minute of it. You know what, right? 24 hours, 48 hours before you actually uh, hang things up, you sort of reflect and you sit back in your room and obviously a lot of things are going through my mind. And I'm almost sure that one of the things that might have uh, put a smile on my face, because I was not ready to go. I mean, I was 37 years old. I, I felt that I still could play um, a lot more test cricket. But um, if it's one thing that I, I realized that, what did I mean to the people of the Caribbean? You know, um, be it um, somebody that may not have, uh, be it a detractor or somebody who was just in love with me in terms of, you know, um, didn't matter what I did. I think the most important thing is that I, I brought a smile in their face. I played the game in a way where people were um, happy to see me play, happy to pay money to see me play. Is one one of those players who just sort of, try to just accumulate numbers. And I felt that, um, you know, I sat in my room and I felt that that is one thing that I'm sure I've been. I sort of entertained and that is maybe the most important thing a batsman should think about um, in terms of uh, not just a batsman, a sportsman. You know, people are, you know, putting money, coming in and you've just got to entertain them. That's your job. So I was happy to be classified as someone that entertained. Oh, Brian, you entertained and you entertained and you entertained. Even when you were smacking in Australia and I wanted to see you eventually get out, you were still entertaining. What was it like to give it away? Uh, you know, how do you walk away from the game that's been such a big part of your life? Was it an easy transition? Was it a difficult transition for you? Um, it, was, uh, it was easy. I mean, it was a tough decision. Um, a lot of friends and, and influencers wanted me to continue. Um, that, as I said, it wasn't a decision I wanted to make. It was sort of spontaneous. I felt that I was going to leave the one-day game, but I wanted to play in England in the summer that was following. But I, I realized that um, at no point in time I played a game for, for personal benefits. And at that time, the Indies team needed a new leader. They needed a different direction. And yes, I could have continued, but I felt that I did the best that I could and it was the best time to leave. And uh, till today, there is no regrets. There is no um, feeling that I left uh, too early. And actually, it's a great thing when people said that you could have played a couple more years instead of saying, well, I think you stayed there a little bit too long. You know, your average could have been better or this or that or whatever the case may be. So I felt that um, with no regrets, I did the right thing.
Back to BC shortly. More recently, we've introduced the Howie Games hotline to the show. Check out the podcast feed. You'll see it there. Have a listen. The idea is you guys record and send in your questions about the podcasts, about guests, about sport, anything else at all, and I will try and answer your questions. Simples. The hotline number for you to record your message on your phone and send it to my phone is 0434 694 301. That's 043 Howie 01. Once again, 0434 694 301. Really easy for you guys to get involved, and I love to hear your questions. So you need to, on your phone, record a question and text or WhatsApp it to the number. So if you're overseas, you can send the WhatsApp through, or within Australia, you can leave a voice message, and we will get you on the show. You'll hear yourself on the show, send your question in, I'll try and answer it. Now, if you haven't already, check some of the hotline additions out. Hey, Harry, Ben here, huge fan of the show. How do you go planning an episode knowing your audience is so broad? Do you choose some guests that will suit some people and some that will suit others, or do you just choose the best guest possible? Thanks, Harry. See ya. That is possibly the best question we've had, only because I was talking about this with someone in the last 24 hours. When it started out, rightly or wrongly, I was free to have whoever I wanted on the show. Because no one knew about it. And after the first week when we had our 45 downloads, we were like, whoa, we're <laughs> yeah. absolutely flying here. Yep. As we got a few high-profile guests, you start to think in your own mind, are you setting a certain standard that the audience now expects? And can you now go and get people that are of, for want of a better term, lower profile? And I bring this up because... When people say, what episode should I listen to? It's unrepresentative of the show, but Jack Jones, who passed away at the start of the year, played in a lot of grand finals for Essendon, premiership player, served in Papua New Guinea. I often think to myself, in the world in which we live now and the world in which we've created with the Howie Games, would I consider getting Jack on the show because I'm concerned that he is not enough of interest, Das? Mm to the majority of the listeners. Now, when we had 40 listeners, it didn't matter. When we've got the amount of listeners we have now, it's like a TV show. Do you start veering off what made Seinfeld successful and disappoint the Seinfeld fans? Not that we're Seinfeld. So between episode 70 and 100, to answer your question, I've been a bit long-winded, I probably was looking at more high profile, but now I'm hoping that the audience is rusted on enough that I can put a name there that they will not immediately recognize and will listen anyway and that the story of the person will be good enough to keep them entertained and informed and illuminated. Well is said. the answer to that question. That is the Howie Hotline. Another episode coming again soon. The number once again is 0434 694 301. Darcy and I love to hear them. All righty, let's get back to Brian. You faced Sky, the pickle, earlier on. Now you get my son, Brian. <laughs> who uh, you saw a video of batting the other day, and that's what sparked this podcast. And we, we were very excited to get a message from you. His name is Mac, but he operates as the Big Penguin. That's the nickname he gave himself, Brian. So are you ready for the question from the Big Penguin? Sure. Hey, Mr. Lara, Big Penguin here. Firstly, thanks for the message that you sent to my dad about my batting and having fun when I was playing cricket because it really meant a lot to me when I read it. I also want to know, what's your favourite shot? I know you're a left-hander. I'm a left-hander as well, and my favourite shot is the hook shot. Also, was it really, really hard to concentrate when you made 400? Big penguin, you said? Big penguin. (laughs) 
he looks pretty small to me with those big pads and bats and stuff. Yes, like that. yes. Uh, yeah, great question. Great, great question. I think um, I think the shot that I, I, I liked the most was uh, definitely the square drive. You know, when when a, a bowler pushes you back and he thinks that, you know, he can put one up looking to take the outside edge, um, getting your foot to the pitch of the ball and carving it through the covers is definitely one of my, my favorite shots. I had a few. I enjoyed every single one of them. I love to put the ball in the gaps, but the cover drive and stand and watch, not moving, <laughs> definitely was my, my top shot. Um, big penguin. But <laughs> also uh, difficult to concentrate for 400. No, it was more difficult doing the 375 because those were uncharted waters. I, I never really got to those, that position before. So I found it difficult on the final morning to concentrate. Now, having scored 375, having scored 501, um, the 400 was a lot more calculated. You know, uh, at different stages, you know where you're getting to. You know when you were on top of the opposition. You know when they're going to come back and throw something at you uh, with the new ball or late in the evening or early in the morning. So I felt that I had a greater understanding of how to go about scoring um, such a large um, total. So for me, and, and I think the message that I, I want to get to, um, Mark, is the fact that when you prepare yourself, right, anything is possible, right? I never knew. 375 was possible. But from that day onwards, from 1994 onwards, I knew I could score big. I knew how to go about to play each session and maximize each and every single session. So to Mark, it's just a matter of really and truly, truly preparing yourself and going out there and achieving. And whatever milestone that you achieve, know that there is something beyond. Know that this might be fulfilling at the time, but you as a, as a young cricketer could push that boundary as far as you want. Push it as far as you want. And not just with your mouth and toe. Push it with your, with, with your discipline and dedication to the game. And you'd realize that you would do things that are out of the ordinary. Brian, we're 115 episodes in. That's one of the most beautiful answers I've ever heard on this podcast. So it's a fantastic answer. He was... When he was referring to the message, then you sent me a message and it really struck me because it said, good looking lefty you've got there, keep working with him always. But this was the important bit to me. Look to keep him smiling and enjoying the game. It must never be a burden for him. That as a dad struck right to my heart that you are pushing that it's got to be fun for kids. It has to be. It has to be. And um, I, I knew for a fact that my dad didn't like football too much. Um, table tennis was okay. Football was a little bit dangerous. And obviously, as a teenager, you love football. 90 minutes and, you know, it's all over. Your friends are playing it. Everyone's playing it. Dwight York was, a, uh, was there as well as a youngster. And he never stopped me. I enjoyed my cricket. I, I played football during the rainy season. I table tennis. And... My dad never any, at any point in time shouted me about my batting, about getting out. Never, never did. I learned. I was angry at myself more than anything else. But um, I learned to enjoy the game. I learned to enjoy all sport. And uh, maybe that's also a very good thing, to encourage all different sports. 
uh, at least at the beginning, and let that decision be made um, in conjunction with yourself, but let that decision be made by the young sportsman or sportswoman and their parents, or even by themselves. They would know what's best for them. And it was 14 years, I was 14 years old, and we were going to Venezuela with the national on the 16 football team. And uh, my, my college was going to Barbados with the cricket team. Hmm. National or just college. But I knew for a fact that cricket was really and truly what I wanted to play. And I made that decision. Of course, my father was very, very happy that I did make that decision. But um, I think it's key to play a sport and to play it with a smile on your face and not as a burden. And maybe that's a reason why I also retired, because I felt that that smile was starting to rub off. And life now for you, what are you into? Firstly, firstly, I need to ask you, people need to follow you on social media at Brian Lara Official on uh, on Instagram because there's some fantastic stuff there. It looks like you make a real effort to keep fit as well, as well as at Brian Lara on Twitter. What, what generally, are you, have you in, are you involved in those very, very sharp sunglasses you're wearing there at the moment? What are they all about, Brian? You know what, I, I had this opportunity to uh, align with a um, company in Trinidad for its optical and they wanted to do a brand of uh, eyewear in my name. And I felt that, you know, at that stage of, uh, at this stage of my life, you know, the past money or, or, or it's all good. But if you can have a product that can last, yeah, that would be very, very important. So we sort of... Um, did a bit of design and they came up with um, some wonderful designs. And presently it's only available in the Caribbean and we are working on getting it on a larger scale. I, I think it's got a, a really nice box. I don't have the, um, it's pretty nice. cool. Yeah. And uh, we do from, from shades to, you know, um, description stuff. So it's, it's good. I like it. So what's it called? Um, they have different ones. So this one, I think it's 400. Well, I can't even see when I take it off. <laughs> oh, they must be good then. But can I get these in, Can I get these online in Australia or not? I, I am not 100% sure. I know that um, they were building that uh, okay. uh, ability to do so, and I'll find out. Okay, I'll find out and let me know, and I'll, I'll put it on the intro on the link in the podcast so people can get involved. Mate, um, something that I spoke to Michael Holding about, and I put in the email to you and, and you gave me a passionate answer and it's an area that is best that I listen rather than talk. But the Black Lives Matter that has swept the world, to me, that is about equality and fairness in the world. What does it mean to you? Well, first of all, um, you know, you hear a lot of stories and, and uh, my experiences are, are limited because in the Caribbean, uh, Back in my day, I went to a school that's predominantly white. Um, I stayed at someone's house, uh, Mr. Joey Carew, who played for the West Indies back in the days when, you know, white players were preferred uh, to the black players. But I never really felt um, anything. And, and, and to me personally, growing up, I didn't understand, or I was not made to understand the difference in the color of someone's skin. Um, I knew for a fact that, uh, you know, where I came from and I was very proud of it, but no one actually made me feel, um, bad about it. So 
when you understand uh, what's happening in, in places like America and bigger countries where this is um, happening, I mean, it's, I mean, I just think it's an amazing world where you have different shapes of people, you have different um, contours and, you know, body contours and face, and it's just outstanding traveling to Japan or, or India or, you know, even people coming to the West Indies that, you know, what is really the problem? Um, but as we know, it's not a, a physical problem. I don't believe it's a physical problem. It's a, it's a mental, it's a subconscious situation where um, this has been ingrained in a lot of people over a longer period of time. And today, there are a lot of people that are privileged and don't want no part of it. They actually don't want no part of it. But there are some people that cannot move or think without actually putting that as uh, the number one priority. We need to sort of try to put a stake in the ground and say, let's move forward. I think that um, it's, it's, it's a shame that people actually still think that way. And of course, I've visited South Africa. Of course, there was this little uh, thing that you feel that, you know, was said. But um, it's, just, uh, it's just something that I hope that we can all get over because it's, it makes no sense, you know, that people actually get so emotionally um, triggered that they commit silly, stupid crimes and, you know, it's caused so much chaos. We're living in a world now, this is 2020, and COVID isn't sparing anybody. Death isn't sparing anybody. Everybody, you bleed, is the same thing. So for me, it's, it's, um, it's a situation where that I hope, and you, you see a lot of the football players, soccer players in Europe now, the stance that they're taking and, and what they're talking about. And there was something recent, I think, with, I don't want to call the wrong club, I think Millwall, uh, where it you was. Know, players, was it, is it correct? Yeah. And it's, it's just unbelievable that that still stands and is still a major um, thing in this world. We've got so much other things to worry about. And, um, you know, it hurts you as, as a black person to, to feel that there's that sort of, uh, of um, thing that's happening that can actually put fear in you, you know, and um, you don't want to be stopped in America. I don't ever want to be stopped in America now. So um, I, I can only beg that it, it changes. Um, I'm proud of a place like Australia. I've never actually um, experienced anything in this country. I think, you know, receiving the Australian medal and, and being a part of, of this country for many, many years and playing cricket and being appreciated. And I would always go back to, you know, the books that I read where I think 100,000 people came out to see the West Indies cricket team leave uh, Melbourne in 1962 after a wonderful series. Um, these things resonate really high. And I think that um, we all can learn from it. So hopefully, you know, you know, everybody can put in a little bit of two cents uh, the whites, the blacks, whatever culture, whatever ethnical group that you're in, and solve this problem, and 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 let's move on. What you said there about it makes no sense to you. That is how it strikes me. It absolutely makes no sense to me at all. But anyway, we're we're a sporting podcast. But yeah, mate, it makes yeah we've got you know we've got strides to make in this country as well. Um, hey, if we were doing this in ten years, um, and you were closer to sort of 60 then. And I said to you, Brian, what's the last 10 years entailed? What would you hope that <laughs> that next 10 years of your life is about? Um, 
still I'm still growing. Um, I'm still growing. I I'm spending a lot of time now. Um, I'm about to start a, a course in sports psychology, trying to find out why um, I did what I did because I know it was not just to, down to talent um, and mm. the physical work that I did. I think that I needed a mental strength. And there are a lot of young players that come to me and ask me about their foot position and their head position and this and that. And, and, you know, and I just want to know, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? How strong you are? Because I know for a fact that a cover drive off of uh, Adam Dale or Glenn McGraw is not the same cover drive I'm going to hit off Shoibak to Brett Lee. And my foot is going to be a totally different position because of that fear of being struck with a cricket ball. Mm-hmm. So mentally, you know, I was, you know, a little bit affected. So for me, um, finding out a little bit more about the mental side of sport is something that I'd want to um, learn and acquire in the next uh, in the next 10 years for me. Um, hopefully continue on the circuit, continue traveling. That is a, a, a big uh, plus for me. And obviously my health. Um, spending a little bit more time than I've done over the last eight months. COVID uh, pandemic has been tremendous to me in understanding that. I've got a lot of time to sit down and eat and drink and eat and drink and put bad things into me. Hmm. But I learned very quickly to um, stop those things and it's been a revelation in terms of my fitness and my health. I've got two more questions for you. Um, you've been extremely generous with your time, although you can't go anywhere, so you're in quarantine, <laughs> so this is perfect for me. Um, back to your Instagram at Brian Lara Official. People should really jump on board and follow it. And I noticed the thing that I really enjoyed was you'd put out some top fives, the top five batsmen you'd played with, the top five bowlers you'd face. I don't want to give it away. I want people to go to Brian Lara Official. I have a question for you along those similar lines. Talked about giving it away and saying that I hope I entertained you. Who do you sit down and watch play cricket now? Who, who, when they're on the telly, or do you think, right, I'd pay 20 bucks to go and watch this person in action? Who's that for you? Uh, there are a lot of players. And, um, you know, of course, I'm in quarantine, so I watched a, a bit of the test match. But my favourite player today is KL Rahul. It, I, I think that um, that... I don't understand how he's on the sidelines. I, I, I hope he might have been injured. But I've never seen someone with uh, such great technique and grace and um, able to play all forms of the game. You look at him and he plays uh, T20 mm. and his strike rate is great. His aggregate is great. And he looks like a test batsman most of the time when he, when he plays, the shots that he plays. So for me, he is definitely number one. Brad Coley is definitely up there as well. Um, Jopra Archer, I don't know how in the world we could allow a player like that to leave the Western Indies. How did I that happen? How did that happen, Brian? Understand. <laughs> and, um, his ability with the ball is tremendous. When he really wants to pump it up, it's unbelievable. And I, I said it before where if there's one player, one bowler that I may find difficult um, with Jopra Archer, simply because he gets so close to the umpire that he's bowling down uh, a channel straight at you. Mm. And sometimes I like that angle created by the bowlers when they run wide. It doesn't matter how, how fast they bowl, but if they run wide, they give you an angle that you can you know, move away from the ball. And But for me, I think he is a great, great talent. And um, he is somebody that I love. Uh, I love watching cricket as well. With the West Indies, uh, Jason Holder has been good. Shai Hope. I'm a bit disappointed, but when he's on song, he's uh, a very special talent. 
And then we have um, Darren Bravo, who was touted at the time a few years ago as a left-handed batsman, lived in the same village that I lived in, mm. had the same sort of uh, <laughs> technique and the way how he holds the bat. I was hoping that he was going to do something very special. He's still around. It's still a possibility. But um, yeah, they've got some great players around the world. And um, just looking at them bat is just unbelievable. Final question I have for you, and we've talked about it in and out throughout the podcast, but I always finish, we're lucky, very lucky, Brian, that a lot of families listen to this show, a lot of kids listen to the show, um, trying to find their way in the world. So if there's children listening that want to become a cricketer or a baseballer or a concert pianist or a great mathematician or the world's best house painter, from your tremendous experience, what would you say to those kids that are looking to succeed in their chosen field in their life? I would say that if it comes easy, it's not the real thing. I believe that anything that's worth having in this world, and if you want to get to the top of any field, it is not going to come easy. You've got to do a lot of work, sacrifice. You've got to sweat. You've got, you know, whatever, in whatever field, you've got to make sure and put in a lot of work. And there's going to be times when you encounter a hurdle and you want to turn around and go in the next direction. That is the time then where you're going to be very well tested. And you have to come through those tests. And if you fail, pick yourself back up and get going again. So for me, you have to work to get to the top. There is no easy way. And that is the number one lesson that I've learned, not just in my career as a cricketer, but um, in business as well. And let me tell you something. When I left cricket, you know, the wolves came out. So <laughs> you've got to be able to work. You've got to dedicate yourself. And, you, you know, if you do that, I think you can get to the top. Brian, this has been a tremendous thrill for me. What's it been like for you to reflect back on life and cricket and et cetera? It's been, it's been a tremendous 90 minutes. I've got to you know, use the microwave now to warm my... <laughs> That's my but fault. Howie, um, it's been tremendous. Um, it's been uh, lovely to um, interact with you. And I look forward to seeing the big penguin um, grow as a young Indeed, and, uh, Brian. It has been a tremendous thrill for me. Um, stay safe. You're in quarantine now. You're about to go and do some commentary on the Big Bash. When this comes out, people have been blown away how good you are on television as well. Travel safe. Stay safe. Um, I hope to see you in person soon. Thank you so much for joining me on the Howie Games, Brian. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Brian Lara. Wow. Brian Lara. I thought that was a really, really cool episode and I hope you guys loved it as much as I did. Thanks to Brian for being such a wonderful, open, friendly, warm and generous guest. Gave us two hours of his time. Remember, you can follow Brian on social media on Instagram at Brian Lara Official and on Twitter at Brian Lara. Thanks to Das, as always, for doing what Das does. And old mate MJ, the show's original producer, is back on board. MJ's joined Podcast One and he's jumped back on the Howie Games Express. Good to have you back, Guru. I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week. Until next Thursday when the player profile drops for our guest of guests. Cannot wait. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. try.